Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning from the heart of the Los Angeles South Bay area. Welcome to the show called Make Life Happen, a show which is all about energizing you to live up to your human potential, hopefully providing you with some pithy ideas and resolutions to your everyday concerns, as well as a consciousness about the welfare of others and how you can make their life a much better life as well. Today, we're going to be talking about family court system and how it seems to be perpetuating child abuse, a rather odd matrix to say the least. I'm Dr. Carol Francis. I'm a clinical psychologist, marriage family child therapist, and a certified medical hypnotherapist. I've been working in the field for over 30 years as a therapist, seeing people and the society that we live in change considerably. 30 years is a long time, and there's a lot of transitions that have taken place. In the family court as well, there have been a lot of different adjustments, some that have caused children to suffer from significant child abuse. I need to first disclaim, however, sounds like what a lawyer would do, and since I'm dealing with lawyers and judges, I think that is important, as well as it's an act of respect. Many talk shows will slander the people they're focusing their concerns on. I mean not to do that. It's not helpful, number one. Many of these lawyers and judges actually have gotten into the field with the hopes of being able to help individuals, children, keep them safe, keep them safe in a stressful time of divorce, conflict between parents. And initially, when there were custody issues added to the family court process in a much more conscientious sort of way, the children were the primary concern. And in fact, the laws are still written that the child's welfare will be put above the welfare of the parents. That's embedded in the various and sundry statements made to encourage judges and lawyers to keep focused on the well-being of children. However, there have been adjustments, especially in California, as that's my point of view, and other states will have to, other listeners from other states will have to adjust their point of view based on what the laws are. Some are worse, some are better. In the state of California, not too long ago, approximately five years ago, there was an adjustment made in our Sacramento area that was actually perpetuated by lawyers who wanted to make sure, lawyers, judges, some parents, who wanted to simplify the process of custody with the hopes, really actually with the hopes, of reducing child custody battles that completely clog up the courts and do not help the children. So with the idea that you're going to make a life for children better because you're going to be reducing the parental conflict, well, that seems like a perfect way of going about things. The way they solved it was to provide a 50-50 custody default so that now all the judges have this ingrained perspective along with child custody evaluators, which are usually psychologists, none of which are really developmental psychologists, so there's a different issue there. I'll get into that in a moment. These individuals have been infiltrated, so to speak, to make their consciousness in the direction that 50-50 is the ultimate custodial goal. Now, while that initially was espoused as a way of reducing the battle because all the parents would know that's just going to be the automatic default unless there are very serious circumstances, it, in fact, has caused more complications to occur that have caused the children to be in more jeopardy. Why? Because along with the 50-50, 
became a lack of focusing on the child's specific relationship with a specific parent and how that was going to affect the development and health of the child. That was no longer the complicated approach to dealing with child custody issues. And truly, it's complicated. How does one define a child's relationships with a parent? How does one define what is in the health of the child? We can define it as, well, they should have an equal relationship with both parents regardless of the divorce status. That's easily arguable. But prior to this perspective that was now so entrenched in the family courts in California, there was more of an effort to look very specifically at what the needs of the child was in terms of development, age, relationship with parent, and there was usually assumed to be a primary caretaking parent, and that parent was considered to be the one that was going to be a default. Who's ever been the primary child caretaker was the person who was going to get most of the custodial responsibilities and rights. But the new 50-50 arrangement, and actually was also intended to help fathers who were not considered predominantly at that point in time the primary child care giver. That seems kind of unfair because then the father moving on toward a, another family wasn't with the child the same as the mother was the majority of the time. Of course, now our society, like I was saying, 30 years of experience, our society has changed considerably because women now work as much as the men do. Not quite, actually. The statistics don't quite support that. But that's the philosophy. And in fact, in the family court system, if the mother is not working equal to the father, the mother is told to go work equally in quantity to the father. Perhaps not able to earn as much money, but should invest as much time in the effort of income building. Where does that leave the children? It usually leaves the children in the hands of caregivers that are not mother nor father because the court is very conscientious about focusing on equalizing the efforts between the parents and equalizing the relationship the child has with each parent without regard to who is the better parent. Now, that's the key, is without regard to who is the better parent. That no longer is relevant unless there are extreme situations. At least that's the way it's written in there. And now we go into what those extreme situations are. The painful thing is that the extreme situations don't seem to include a lot of child abuse or what has been formally or heretofore defined as child abuse. What is child abuse? Well, according to the Department of Children's Services, definition in the field of psychology, the APA, the ABA, the AMA, uh, child abuse includes several areas, neglect, verbal, emotional, mental, physical, sexual. And exposure to drugs, alcohol, um, even exposure to seeing a parent being abusive or a child, uh, brother or sister being abusive to someone else, that is considered a form of neglect. And it is not in the child's best interest to be exposed to abuse, alcohol. I'm not just talking about a drink at dinner time. not even talking about um, cocktails. I am talking about an excessive use of alcohol, like alcoholism, and, of course, the use of any street drugs. Medical drugs, of course, are okay, interestingly enough, but that's another show. And we move on to other forms of neglect. Of course, you would think of a child that's not being dressed or fed, showered, 
um, now we go into a, a gray area in that how about if they're not being supported academically, taken to school, if they have a low uh, attendance at school, that is a form of neglect, not taking care of what is in the child's best interest. Then we get into the really gray areas. What is neglect? Secondly, we have, of course, things that look a little bit clearer, but still not quite that clear. We're talking about emotional and mental abuse. I'm going to put those two categories together. If there is excessive yelling, whatever that excessive means, excessive screaming, excessive denigrating statements, demoralizing statements, put down statements, if it is excessive to the point of making the child feel depressed, anxious, nervous, afraid, intimidated, uh, and um, sullen, where their self-esteem is damaged, then one would consider the possibility of mental and emotional abuse. Now, interesting on mental and emotional abuse, that really isn't considered that egregious. That may let us know exactly what people are accustomed to. And interestingly, there are a couple of professions where the professionals in the professions are notably oriented to a mental and emotional abuse. Let me pick on those professions for a moment. There's a lot more physical and mental and emotional abuse that children are exposed to in the military families, families of the police, and also in the legal profession, lawyers, judges, where often, even though they're a higher income group usually, there is more of an oligarchy, an, 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 a rule by one ruler, the authoritative approach that is so severe that verbal means of punishment, intimidation, denigration are considered a way of keeping a child in line. In those particular families, a child is not to think independently. A child is to act in accord with the dictator of the family. And that is a way of constructing a family, and it's not really considered child abuse if a family opts in that direction. And there are such things as benign dictators. There's no question. And there are times when parents have to be dictatorial, but that's very different than having a very severe emotional, mental, and maybe even physically abusive situation in a dictatorially oriented family matrix. However, it's in those types of family where they cross the line toward what would be considered abuse. So crossing that line, where is that line, is one of the issues there. So we move on. It, it, the reason I brought that up in terms of what types of family is that you have individuals within the legal profession who therefore are more tolerant of the mental and emotional abuse because that's what they were subjected to often. That's why they tend to be that way as parents. And therefore it's normalized. And it's also therefore what they subject their children to and therefore it is normalized. Um, the next area of abuse, which would be the fourth category since I put together the first two, is the physical abuse. Physical abuse tends to be even easier to find because consequences of scratches, bruises, broken bones, um, things that actually have physical manifestations that can be photographed at the police station. The actions that we do in this type of uh, process is physical abuse. That one's easier to define. But how about the physical abuse that occurs the dragging around, the pushing, the pushing in the walls, the becoming a little bit aggressive, the pushing your body up against your child in a bullyish sort of way. These acts of bullying, again, 
more a product of dictatorial type parenting styles, authoritative type parenting styles, are not always considered as by the legal profession because the legal profession, again, is more tolerant as that's usually the way they raise and usually the way they're raising their children as well. So they're more tolerant of that approach to parenting. Fifth, of course, we had the sexual abuse, the inappropriate touching of sexual parts or with the intent of sexual stimulation or sexual gratification to the toucher. And that's an absolute, complete no-no. And the court will usually look at that, these last two levels of abuse and decide that maybe 50-50 is not the right way to go. Um, but even in those circumstances, I have seen an increase of judges still establishing a relationship between a noteworthy sexual and physically abuse, abuser with a child over the protest of the child or because a child does have a longing to be with that parent out of a rather sick attraction to that type of abuse, which unfortunately does occur um, with a form of brainwashing, or because the child really does know that there are other parts of that parent that are quite loving and quite lovable. So taking that all into consideration, you're probably looking at yourself going, okay, where am I? Where are my kids? Where would I be in a custody battle? But the judge... If they hear, you would think that if a judge hears about any form of those abuses, at least they would consider the level of intensity, the danger to the child's well-being, and really reconfigure the 50-50 default so that the child is, a child's existence and welfare is peaceful, safe, because that's a primary directive. That's a primary directive. The child must be safe. Secondly, the child must be well taken care of. But so the judge, you would think that the issues of safety would be paramount in the judge's mind. No, that is not the case. Why? Well, let me give you a little bit of history once again. I want, I want you to understand the complexity of this because I think this honors the judicial process and how they have evolved into this default mode. Trying to explain it may actually help us be able to grow ourselves out of this kind of blind spot that has been built up around the family court situation. There was a psychologist, one of me, named Richard Gardner, and he was a fabulous writer on helping therapists like me work with children of divorce. I read all of his books, used his tools with children. It was fabulous, helped parents with the different materials that he had to use. Really quite an awesome contribution to the profession, especially as we began to see the increase of divorced families go from 20% to 60% of all families in the United States. So having children of a divorced family is the norm and not the exception. That doesn't mean there's child custody battles into those situations, fortunately. Well, Richard Gardner began to observe a phenomenon that happened a certain percentage of the time, or rather a low percentage of the time, and that was called alienation. Parent B and parent A. There we go. Parent A would attempt to convince the child that parent B was awful and would essentially go through the process of brainwashing the child to not have any, want to have any association with parent B. Previously, when judges would hear that the child didn't want to have anything to do with parent B, the judge would say, okay, this must be the better caretaker. For some reason, there's something wrong with parent B. Therefore, we're going to put primary custody and primary legal responsibilities in the hand of parent A. 
Richard Gardner began to note, wait a minute, that primary aim is actually brainwashing a child to not want to have a relationship with parent B. That's not right. And I totally agree that that's not right. But here's the rub in the legal system. I want you for a moment to imagine that this, the family court system attracts certain people to the profession. And the lawyers, by their wonderful warrior-like nature, are mercenaries purchased by their clients to go out and fight their war. They're the frontliners, and they like it that way. And they know they're warriors. They know they're warriors and not peacemakers, but the clients don't. So they go out there, much less of the quantities of attorneys, are oriented toward collaborative, calm, peaceful resolution. All of that is another dimension of child custody, but that's for another program. Most lawyers have built into them the excitement, the biochemical process of being charged up by going out there and winning. And they really don't care what side they take. They just care about the ultimate goal of feeling the rush of the win. Believe me, I've worked with attorneys in all sorts of different situations, and I see the allegiance to that delicious biochemical rush. It's like extreme sport to win. So now you have these Spartan Trojan warriors on the front lines in the family court. And note that the family court is run by a judge that very typically was once a family attorney. So you've got three warriors all vying for a position of who's going to be top dog, which is usually a judge, but who's going to persuade the judge the best persuader to the judge is going to get the judge to vote on their side. So the best lawyer, and believe me, choosing a lawyer for a custody battle is the most important function that you will ever serve if you're fighting for child custody. Most important, bar none. So the best, most persuasive lawyer is going to get the judge to swing the custodial percentages over to that individual. The best lawyers are usually afforded by the richest member of the family. And the richest member of the family typically has been the man and actually still is. And therefore, as a consequence, the, the man, who is also a larger percentage of men, have abusive relations with the children. There are plenty of women that do as well. But statistically speaking, that's a larger representation than the male, the father, for whatever testosterone reasons, perhaps, or societal reasons, or maybe the father's a warrior. And remember, in a child custody battle, usually the parents have become warriors in a war as well, and that usually doesn't happen when you have one subservient parent and one dominant parent. Usually there's no custody battle. The dominant parent will win. Or if you have two subservient, peaceful parents, you usually don't end up in child custody battles as well. So in a child custody battle, you've got the three warriors, the judge, the two warriors, you've got the two parents who were warriors, and you have an all-out war, and the children are caught in the background, helplessly not represented effectively in this war. And the war is all about them. But the truth is it's not all about them. It's all about who's going to win, and that's the sad part about it. Well, Richard Gardner came up with this observation. The lawyers seized upon this alienation factor as an opportunity to blame the other parent and, and to cast 
alienation claims against the other parent and persuade the judge that therefore the other parent who's an alienator, those are the terms, is not to have predominant custody. But what happens is that the richer lawyer, the richer client who is predominantly hired by the most litigious parent, the battler of the group, will claim that the child doesn't want to have anything to do with the other parent because um, the parent is an alienator. So, for example, parent A, peaceful, loving, kind parent. Parent B, abusive. Whatever way we want to define it, we already went through the categories. So just use your imagination. Parent B is the abuser. The child doesn't want to be with the abuser. Any healthy child would not want to be with an abusive parent, predominantly, or at all. So a child sitting in a state of conscious and health, looking at their bruises and scratches and scrapes, their, their physical, emotional, demoralized experience with parent B doesn't want to associate with parent B. The lawyer parent B, however, would say, oh, it has nothing to do with whether or not my client has estranged a child by abusive actions. No, it has to do with that parent A is an alienator and convincing the child to dislike parent B. The child is never given voice. You would think the child would be given voice, but that's another issue altogether. The child is not given voice, doesn't get to explain their point of view, because they don't want to put the child to the stress of the court's battle, which, in fact, it is extraordinarily stressful. You would think that's taking care of the child, but the child doesn't get to be represented unless there's a child custody evaluator or there's a minor's counsel. And even then... The default is so strong along 50-50 that child custody evaluators are told in coursework, literature, and by the judge that hires them for twenty to thirty to forty thousand dollars to write the report. The judge doesn't hire them. The judge orders the parents to hire the child custody evaluator. The child custody evaluator knows that they are to come up with a 50-50 configuration unless there's a very good argument not to. In like manner, the minor council is also oriented toward a 50-50. Why? This is to help eliminate the impact of alienation and estrangement calls or to make it equal between the two parents. Because remember, this is called timeshare. A child has a time, parents have a timeshare with their child. Isn't that an interesting application of thought with a fiscal, a financial term? related to child care and child well-being. But that concept of owning a child actually is very archaic in our society and comes from the pre-industrial and the industrial revolution era of our society. It is an archetypal attitude that we own our children and have a right to our children, as opposed to our children have a right to safety, well-being, peace, stability, good parenting. But that's been the flux. That's the history of the change. So now if you're going in there with a child custody battle and your child doesn't want to see you, you can claim alienation against the other parent and if the judge is persuaded by the overly persuasive judge, a, a warrior attorney, then chances are you might even be awarded more than 50-50 because of the egregiousness of alienation. And it is egregious. Richard Gardner observed horrible circumstances of brainwashing. However, it is no longer relevant whether or not there truly is alienation or not because lawyers are strategists. 
they're warriors. How to win the war is all they care about. And if they have to lie, reconfigure reality, uh, be persuasive on a point that doesn't even exist, they will do so. Now, why isn't a judge seeing through this process? Well, first, again, they have been moved to the default of 50-50. Secondly, because they too came from the era where alienation was used as a dominant way of attacking another parent, of explaining why a child didn't want to be with another parent. Thirdly, they also come from the point of view that they have sound bites. They function on making judgments of sound bites. And if you've spent much time with individuals in the profession, they're quick to assert that certain details, just take a few pieces of details out of a circumstance, weave a tell that is not even related to the actual event, and present it as if it's fact, and then they get everybody to function about that situation based on their woven perception about those certain details. And a judge is in a very precarious spot to collect detail from lawyer 1A and lawyer B and hear these one-liners and sound bites held out and these declarations that are written by lawyers for their clients, which are just supposed to be written by the clients. And, and, and the judge has to make this quick decision. The best of the judges read carefully. But even the best of the judges because the time crunch that they experience and their human limitations, we have to give that to them, they're not sitting there asking pissy, detailed, resoundingly sophisticated questions that help them truly discern which lawyer is weaving the false stories, which lawyer is representing truth, which client would be a better parent. They rely upon psychologists who are purchased by the parents to make these evaluations, the psychologists doing the child evaluation or the parenting evaluation are told to go 50-50 as a default. That's what they're educated to do. So they also really do not want to deviate from that because then the judges will not want to use them. It makes the judge's life a lot easier to go 50-50. So it makes the child evaluator, the child custody evaluator's life a lot easier. They go 50-50 as well. What happens to a child? The abuse that the child is actually experiencing is minimized, overlooked, decided to be falsely reported. It's thought to be under the auspices of false claims related to alienation. So that if a parent says the other parent is abusive, there better be photos, videos, proof that there's actual abuse and not just a report of abuse because no one will believe the child, no one will believe the parent when there is a description of child abuse. What is the consequence of this? Added stress for the child. This is the theme of today. I've given you all of this history. What children are experiencing now is that when they are abused by a parent with a default of 50-50 or close thereof child custody arrangement, a child has to go to the abusive parent's home without the protection of the other parent and be subjected to whatever verbal, emotional, mental, physical, even sexual abuse that the abusive parent will dish out. And now the abusive parent is given even more of an opportunity and therefore somewhat of a right to treat that child the way they continue to want to in a victorial, authoritative fashion including abuse because there's no one around to stop them or witness it. And the other parent 
has almost a gag order on them not to bring up issues of abuse because there's a possibility that even more custody would be turned over to the poor parent being accused of abuse when they're not because that's a default. Now, there must, there's probably not abuse. It's probably just false accusations that are associated to alienating the parent. Abuse is not taken at face value anymore. Let's experience this a little bit more. The police department can't rescue a child in this situation when the court order has said parent custody is to be such and such and there have been instances of abuse. The police cannot intervene and stop the court order unless the parent goes in and gets the court order changed. Unless, of course, there are physical signs of abuse. Secondly, the Department of Children's Services that was into place specifically to keep children safe, to keep spouses safe, to keep elderly safe from abuse, they also are not allowed to supersede the court order. So if the court order is 50-50 or the court order that the child is to be with the abusive parent, the Department of Children's Services cannot place their research, their interview, their findings above family court order. These children have no recourse. They can't go to the police. They can't go to the Department of Children's Service. They can't get the parent that's non-abusive to speak on their behalf, and they can't even speak for themselves. This is egregiously how, sadly how, family courts are now promoting child abuse. I'm hoping that this half hour does not indict judges as being bad or lawyers as being bad. In many respects, they're doing whatever job they can do. But they have all moved into a level of awareness or a level of being socialized to think that the position that they're taking is to the benefit of creating equalization of parenting and equal opportunity to have a sound relationship with each parent. But child abuse, is being actually allowed by the family court according to this process. This is Dr. Carol Francis. Thank you for joining me.